It's a bird. It's a plane. It's a Nitschkean Superman. Tonight we take you to a swanky one-bedroom apartment in New York, the home of two upper-class male gentlemen. These two claim to be Nitschkean Supermen, individuals whose superiority of intellect exempt them from laws that govern the rest of us, good and evil, right and wrong. They were invented for the ordinary average man, the inferior man, because he needs them. This very notion could drive a man to commit murder with no remorse and seemingly feel justified. What is to stop them from killing again and again? Who will stop the bloodshed? This is It Records. Hello everybody, I'm one of your hosts, Matt Johnson, for the evening. Joined as always with my great friend and great co-host, Peter Hansen, and I think I'm better than you. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, I was... Giving you a compliment, saying you're a great co-host. We're co-hosting the show, and you throw it back in my face. Hey, I'm just I'm just going with wow. the theme of the movie. <laughs> oh, fair enough. We playing a little Philip there, and I was I was Brandon. The movie everybody we saw for this week was the 1948 psychological thriller slash horror Rope by Alfred Hitchcock. I just think we ought to wait till after you graduate. I don't. It's only a month. Janet, a month. Please. Sorry. I personally consider us engaged as of now. Congratulations. David, no. Look, you can say yes in a taxi. I have a 2.30 appointment I'm staying right here. Oh? Afraid you'll say yes? I'll see you tonight at Brandon's Park. Okay. You can say yes, sir, just as well as in a taxi. Goodbye, darling. Bye. That's the last time she ever saw him alive. And that's the last time you'll ever see him alive. What happened to David Kentley changed my life completely and the lives of seven others. Janet Walker, Henry Kentley, the boy's father, his aunt, Mrs. Atwater, his best friend, Kenneth Lawrence, a housekeeper named Mrs. Wilson, and the two who were responsible for everything, Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan. Mouse, cat, mouse. Philip, which is the cat and which is the mouse? Enough of that. Psycho or the birds, but Rope is a little underrated dandy that we decided to pick up for this week. Before we get into it too much, Pete, I'd love if you could give us our creepy headline for this week. Mm-hmm. 
And I'll love to give it to you, as the people say. As you always do. <laughs> that was very sexual. But I'm ching. No, you're good. So, this is in fact based on the story where rope comes from. It's come, it, come, it was based off a play, and the play is based off this real crime that happened, committed by Leopold and Leb, which are the last names. It's Nathan Leb, no, Nathan Leopold and Richard Leb. Bunch of old white boys from the 20s, from U Chicago, of course. Those bastards. Yeah. Real close <laughs> to home. Just kidding. Yeah. But they're rich as shit, though, is what I'm saying. Um... They they murdered a fourteen year old. Okay, that's just already bad. <laughs> they committed yeah. murder wildly characterized as the crime of the century. As a demonstration yeah. of their perceived intellectual superiority, which they thought rendered them capable of carrying out the perfect crime, and absolved them of responsibility of their actions. Sounds pretty you know, just what the movie is exactly. <laughs> Sounds, yeah, right on to exactly what the movie is. So they uh, murder Bobby Franks, and they actually have the ransom note here. Mm-hmm. And I would probably... Do you want me to read that oh, first, geez. or the... Uh, I gotta want to read that. No, yeah, please, please. Yeah, they have a ransom note? I didn't know, I didn't know this part. so tiny, I gotta fucking zoom in on this shit. Dear Sir, proceed immediately to the book platform of the train. Uh, Watch the east side of the track. Have your package ready. Look for the first large red brick factory. Oh god, I can't even fucking read it. So... Is it handwritten? It looks like it's like like on a typewriter, but it's like really faded. Oh. Well, it's yeah. almost 100 years uh, old. Situated immediately adjoining the track on east, on top of the, this factory is a large black water tower with the word champion written on it. Wait until you have completely passed the south end of the factory. Count five for every rapidly and then immediately throw the package as far east as you can. Remember that this is your only chance to recover your son. Yours truly, George Johnson. Huh. Familiar last name. (laughs) Yeah. No relation (laughs) to to this fictitious character. I didn't know they would would leave a a ransom note for all that. Yeah, it looks... That is... That's that's a little weird. So, they were 19 and 18. So... Mm -hmm. At the University yeah. of Chicago, right? To probably freshmen. They settled be, yeah. They settled on kidnapping and murder of a young boy as the perfect crime. They spent seven months planning everything from the method of abduction to disposal of the body. To effiscate... Oh, I can't say that word. <laughs> uh, hmm. The precise nature of their crime and their motive. They decided to make a ransom demand as I just read, and devised an intricate plan for collecting it, involving a long series of complex delivery instructions to be communicated 
one set by at a time by phone. They typed the final set of instructions involving the actual money drop in the form of a ransom note. Using the typewriter stolen from the fraternity house, a chisel was selected as the murder weapon and purchased. Oh, Jesus. After a lengthy search for a suitable victim, mostly on the grounds of Harvard School for Boys in the Kenwood area, where Leb had been educated, they decided upon Robert Bobby Franks, the 14-year-old son of a wealthy Chicago watch manufacturer. Leb knew Bobby Franks well. He was his second cousin. Ooh. <laughs> and across the street neighbor, and he had played tennis at the Leb residence several times. The pair put their carefully crafted plan in motion on the afternoon of May 21st, 1924, using an automobile that Leopold had rented under the name of Martin D. Ballard. They offered Franks a a ride as he walked home from school. The boy refused initially, since his destination was less than two blocks away. But Leb persuaded him to enter the car to discuss a tennis racket that he had been using. The precise sequence of the events that followed remains in dispute, but uh, the opinion placed Leopold behind the wheel of the car while Leb sat in the back seat with a chisel. Leb struck Francis sitting in the front in the front of him in the passenger seat several times in the head with a chisel, then dragged him into the back seat where he was gagged and soon died. Wow, so they demanded for his dead body, basically. It is what it seems like. Yeah, that's what it was... That was what was weird about it. But the body is that. What were you gonna say? Oh no, go ahead. I was just agreeing with you. That's why the ransom note seems so peculiar to me. With the body and the floorboard out of view, they drove to the predetermined dumping spot near Wolf Lake in Hammond, Indiana, twenty-five miles south of Chicago. After nightfall, they removed and discarded Frank's clothes, then concealed the body in a culvert along the Pennsylvania Railroad tracks north of the lake. To obscure the body's identification, they poured hydrochloric acid on his face and distinctive abdominal abdominal scar, as well as the genitals, to conceal the fact that he was circumcised. Oh yeah, because they were were Jewish. Um, By the time the two men returned to Chicago... Word had already spread that Franks was missing. Leopold called Frank's mother, identifying him as George Johnson. That's where, oh, (laughs) their fake name. That's where the fake name comes in. And told her that Franks had been kidnapped. Instructions for delivering the ransom would follow. After mailing the type ransom note, burning their blood-stained clothes, and cleaning the bloodstains from the rented vehicle upholstery as best they could, they spent the remainder of the events playing cards. Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. <laughs> Once the Franks family received the ransom note the following morning, Leopold called a second time and dictated the first set of ransom payment instructions. The intricate plan stalled almost immediately when a nervous family member forgot the address of the store where he was supposed to receive the next set of inst- distri- uh, directions, and it was abandoned entirely when word came out that the man named Tony Mink had found the boy's body. The connecting route ruse exposed. Leopold and Leb destroyed the stolen typewriter and burned a robe used to move the body. Convinced that they had done everything they could to hide their tracks, they went about their lives as usual. Chicago police launched an intense investigation. Rewards were offered for information. While Leb went about his daily routine quietly, Leopold spoke freely to the police and reporters, offering theories to any who would listen. 
He often told one detective, if I were to murder some, anyone, it would be just such a cocky little son of a bitch as Bobby Franks. But he said that? Wow. That was uh that was that was that's, good that's on his some, part. <laughs> that's some goal. Yeah, really. Jesus. Police found a pair of eyeglasses near the body through common in a prescription and frame. They were equipped with unusual hinge mechanism purchased by three customers in Chicago. One was Nathan Leopold. One question. Leopold offered the possibility that his glasses, now owned by the Chicago History Museum, might have dropped out of his pocket during a bird watching trip. The destroyed typewriter was discovered soon thereafter. The two men were summoned to the formal questioning on May 29th. To only like two, day, two days, really. Right? Or eight days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I got away for it for eight days. <laughs> they asserted that on the night of the murder, they had picked up two women, Edna and May, in Chicago using Leopold's car, then dropped them off sometime later near a golf course without learning their last names. Their alibi exposed as a fabrication. When Leopold Schiffer told the police that he was repairing Leopold's car that night, while the men claimed to be using it, the chauffeur's wife later confirmed that the car was parked in Leopold's garage on the night of the murder. Boom. Wow. Don't commit a don't commit crime. Real, real <laughs> smart guys. They're not superior. Um. No, but that at least the the two guys ring true to the the two main characters in Rope. I mean, it's almost identical besides being a chisel that acted as the murder weapon. It's a rope in the movie Rope, for the most part. Otherwise, it's yeah, very similar. That went a little longer than I thought, so got, I apologize but, for that, but it, it was pretty interesting. <laughs> Sorry, I, I kept going. No, it is interesting. No, I mean, it's a it's a huge case. It's a historical case. You Didn't they say it was the crime of the century yeah. at the time? No, I mean, it's still a, a very famous case. Um, but how long? I mean, they got caught life. Yeah, life, life imprisonment, imprisonment plus ninety nine years. Uh just just in case, I don't, right? I, I don't get where just that comes from. They found the elixir <laughs> of life. I don't either. I know. I never get the double, double life sentence rules. Like just to further punish them as like an ego trip sort of a thing. <laughs> but I don't get how you can serve. Fuck two you, life man! Sentences. You get two life sentences, you piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. Not one. We're getting you in the afterlife, too. We're going to bring you back, and then you're going to serve it even more. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to wrestle your soul. We're going to find it. Put Put it it in a jar. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Well, um, the movie we watched, then Rope, we've kind of discussed it. The main plot is the two young men, they strangle an inferior classmate. David, that's David. Um, they hide his body in their apartment. Um, it's in like a trunk type space. Invite friends over and family for a dinner party as a means to challenge the perfection of their crime. And among those guests are his girlfriend, the the, the victim's girlfriend, and his parents, and a former teacher and friend. They're all friends, right? Yeah, they're all close confidants of David, who is. Strangled with the rope and placed in a trunk inside the apartment. Now, before I break into the movie, well, first, Pete, have you ever seen the movie uh, Murder by Numbers? 
with a young Ryan Gosling, Sandra Bullock. No, I've never seen it. Uh, well, maybe then. But it just reminds me of a rope type movie, may, even more <coughs> the, of the case you talked about. But if you liked Rope, there's another one to watch. Murder by Numbers. Moving on. Um, <laughs> Pete, you introduced this movie to to me. I had never even heard of Rope before this, and I feel like I know Hitchcock fairly well. How did you come come about Rope? Oh, man, that's a really good question. <clears throat> I remember watching it like a couple of years ago. I want to say mm-hmm. it, I was at, we were both at ISU. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I re- either rented it or mm-hmm. I watched it at home. Because I remember um, my friend talked about watching it around the same time I did. And another one of my friends that's into horror. Mm-hmm. And we're both of this like, dude, this movie... This movie's so interesting. You got to check it out. Yeah, because yeah, it's, it's an early Hitchcock, forty-eight. Um, with that, it's his first picture with Jimmy Stewart, um, and his first Technicolor film that he ever did. Stewart went on to do four other films with Hitchcock. But it is interesting, as you said. It, it's a psychological thriller. It teeters on horror um, for certain reasons, but it, it's definitely um, a psychological thriller. Um, yeah. I mean the main the main purpose of the film you start off there's the death of David he's put in the trunk and from there it's basically shot in real time it's an an 80 minute movie hour and 20 minutes but it keeps you within basically like the party takes place in an hour and 20 minutes wouldn't you say Pete I mean it's based yeah. on a, it's based on a play Yeah it's like they have like the the prepping for the part it's like the murder like the end of the murder prepping for the party and then the party and then like right after the party it's yeah. like time is like a little accelerated in like how the events play out, but it like feels like real time. It's like you're witnessing more time, even though it's only like 80 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Hitchcock did that. I mean, he saw the play, was interested, kind of wanted to recreate that. So the film is shot in 10 sequences. It might be more than 10 sequences, less than 10. Eight, it's right? ten. It's ten. Oh, it's ten sequences of about yeah. ten minutes each, uh, of these long takes that are basically staged like a play, and they kind of seamlessly cut them together. Um, you kind of fade into the back of a jacket, but voices are still going. And there's some other ones that he kind of does invisible cuts. I don't know if he caught some of those that I'm not thinking of, but basically just ten cuts throughout this film. That's I it. noticed three. Because you could easily, well, they, they like went into someone's jacket and then they came right out. They did yeah. that like th- they did that like three times that I noticed those, but I didn't I didn't really pick up on the other seven. Yeah, I, I was reading that it was some sort of invisible cut where you just overlaid the film on one another and it kind of just seamlessly went together. Um, I didn't really pick up on it. I was reading Ebert's review of it and he was kind of wishy washy about it, but I I didn't really pick up on it as that big of a nuisance to the flow of the film. It it runs like a play. They they yeah. have movable sets. They're moving the cameras around and everything. Um so that you're not taken out of the illusion that you're confined within this one apartment. With that being said, I brought this up to you Peter before. They confine you to the apartment, but I lost a little bit of tension myself because there's the trunk that the body's in the whole time that they're trying they kind of want to get away with this murder, the per- perfection of it that nobody knows the body's there and they're going to get rid of it later in the night. I lose the tension when 
the trunk is not in frame. Did you feel any of that? Um, that you kind of lost that suspense when they don't aren't actually showing where the body is? Or is that just me? I could see what, what you're saying, though, but I think um, it didn't really lose tension for me because, like, you know, I knew where it was. You know, mm-hmm. I kind of, like... And then it was just, like... Especially when they're, like, just right there. They're just, like, so close to the body that yeah. it, it just, like, plays, like into it very well yeah that's a good point um in particular was there any scene because i mean hitchcock's a master of suspense master of of thrillers and mysteries was there any scene that really pulled on your uh, (laughs) that really pulled on your heartstrings or was really suspenseful for you more than others um yeah, I think uh, we're probably thinking the same scene. Probably, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like when the party's winding down and uh, the cleaning lady uh, starts to put stuff away. And then like you just hear conversation between uh, Jamie Stewart and who Philip, whoever Philip, his act, that actor's name. And then it's just like her going back and forth. And eventually, she's gonna have to put the books yeah. in the trunk again, and you're like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> like <laughs> they're gonna get caught. Yeah, yeah. I was freaking out that whole time, and then she like slowly started opening it, and Jimmy Stewart was coming over to help her. Uh, but then you see Brandon come over and slam it down real quick. That got me. That was I thought that was a great scene. Um, and with that thought, oh, did you have something, Pete? No, no. Oh uh, no. Um, just the whole premise of this movie, the idea that um, there's the body in the room and every, the two murderers know it, not everybody else. It kind of flips the general idea of a Hitchcock movie where his deal with murder, there's mystery, there's the illusion of, of a thriller in there. Um, those movies are are dealing with like the murder's motive. Like They want to know what the bad, why the bad guy did it, but not really the consequences of what will happen to the, the person, especially with like Rear Window with... Jimmy Stewart, again, this one flips it on its head. You know who the murderers are. You know what the motive is from the opening scene, from the first line, really. Um, but it's dealing with the consequences and the repercussions of the action of the murder, which is different from what Hitchcock would normally do. Maybe this is one of his first ones. He was like, nah, this isn't for me. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to work on the motive. I didn't, I didn't like it too much. <laughs> Do you know how this movie was received um, by critics, by audiences when it came out? Um, I know of now it's like well regarded, but I think uh, I remember seeing something like back then. I got like banned. It was like very controversial because um, of like sh- uh, of like the homosexual like uh, like uh, undertones imp- with Brandon undertones. Yeah, like. On first viewing, I really didn't get that. Like, I was just like, oh, these are just two guys that murdered a dude. <laughs> yeah. I had the same thought process. I mean, I, I guess reading that, I saw that too. But watching it, I was like, these are just two guys that, I don't know, went to the same college, lived together. I didn't pick up on any homosexual tendencies between them. But if you say that, I guess if you look at it, maybe maybe they're a couple. But no, I, I don't really see it. Yeah, I guess like not enough to be banned. Well, it's the forties. Yeah, um, I guess like to pick up on undertones, I could maybe see it if there's like, since they went to like an all boys school for like so many years. I don't know. I'm just trying to 
think like a PC. 40s a, a, a 40s <laughs> person homophobe <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, they work together with boys all the time. You know what that means. They told stories about uh, people dying and stuff. <laughs> it yeah. was his favorite story as a child. <laughs> <laughs> that brings up another good line from the movie Jimmy Stewart says about one of the killers is, Brandon, you always like to tell those creepy stories. What? That should be like a like a trigger right away, right alert. This guy's something's messed up. He's telling these crazy stories. The other Philip, the other murderer, strangles chickens. On the farm, and they're all just like, I never are... strangled a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I never did it. He lied. <laughs> all right, all right, Philip. We get it. <laughs> You've been hitting the sauce a little too hard. <laughs> um, I loved Philip in this movie. He did hit the sauce too hard. I got a little drunk, but in that climactic scene, when he smashes that that glass against, uh, against the wall and goes, cat and mouse, who's the cat and who's the mouse? I loved it. Love that scene. I think that's in the trailer. If not, it is. It is in the trailer. Okay, good, good. That's a great scene. Uh, but ter- talking about reception, I asked about it. Um, two things. You said it was banned because of the homosexual tendencies that could have been picked up between Brandon and Philip. I was gonna even say maybe it's because the the whole case was still fresh in everybody's mind. It was only twenty years later. Yeah, just not about too much twenty long. years. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, this is 48. Um, but in terms of reception, um, with Hit- Hitchcock was, wasn't was too large yet in 48, as as big as he was going to get, right? He got yeah, more those, prowess in the 50s and 60s especially. Yeah, he didn't really hit, I feel like he didn't really hit his like American mm-hmm. uh, pro- uh, like promise yet. Like, I feel like he would start probably... Um, he definitely was praised in England, I think, pretty early on. Sure, yeah. But um, didn't hit like America's like mainstream yet. Yeah, which surprised me that reading about this movie, this cast apparently, which is about eight people or so, um, was supposed to be like a star-studded cast, an ensemble cast for the time, like really high paid um, for 1948. I mean, a lot of people know Jimmy Stewart. But I don't know many anybody else from this film, but I heard it. This was this was it. Nineteen forty-eight. If you watch Rope, this was like if you're seeing a movie with Bradley Cooper, Brad Pitt, Jennifer Lawrence. All these Watching people. Ocean's Eleven or something. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a parallel, apparently. <laughs> now, Pete, this is a a horror podcast. If you did you know that? Were you aware this is a horror horror film podcast? As as co-creator, I believe that I uh, I did know that. <laughs> okay, just making sure. Um, so we did rope. What elements from this film would you say lend itself to the horror genre? Is this kind of like the defendant's horror kind of thing that we did with Cloverfield? Con- I guess so. Complex. We kind of had so. that. Mm-hmm. If it's is it sci-fi? Is it horror? Yeah. Yeah. Where this is like, this is very thriller. But I think, um, I don't know. I, I definitely would say it's more of a thriller than horror. But I think of of all the ones that we could have picked that weren't the birds or Psycho mm-hmm. that are our obvious horror choices from Hitchcock, I think this is the best we could have done. And it's kind of interesting to uh, have a perspective of killers 
yeah. I think you don't get that a lot. And that kind of like that kind of plays with the horror genre, I think, a lot. Yeah. So I think that's where that um like horror inspiration comes in from this movie as that aspect. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. That was one of the points that I was gonna draw is sort of the the psychology of the killer is you getting that POV from from this film. Like you're Brandon and Philip, who are the killers, are are your main characters and you're learning about them and and it's it's a little creepy. At least Brandon is. He's the more cocky one of the two. He doesn't feel really any remorse about what he's doing. He kind of reminded me of uh now I, now I literally forgot his name. <laughs> ben Affleck. <laughs> but the actor? Yeah. I got him up right here. He just like uh, kind of like John Dahl played Brandon. Like just looking at him, he just like reminds me of Ben Affleck. I don't know. I could why. see it. Yeah, I could see like Ben Affleck. Yeah, definitely in a pe- like a period piece. Definitely. Okay. He like kind of like especially like early uh, Ben Affleck when he was like more cocky. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Like a uh, Goodwill Hunting Ben Affleck. Or is that too too early? Like I think that's too time. early. I feel like uh like mid two thousands were like okay. like Daredevil time. Yeah, like Daredevil. <laughs> <laughs> You know, just to, to finish that horror point, I agree with you, Pete, on that. And it was the confined suburban setting, which the confined, isolated setting of the apartment, which is always a big thing in horror films. That feeling of being trapped, and uh, I mean, you get, you get murder. I mean, right in the first scene, there's 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 death rampant in this film and corpse. So it lends itself well to it, I think. It definitely was a movie that, like, when I, because I'd never heard of it before, I watched it. It kind of was just like, oh, me neither. Oh, check this movie out, and I was like, damn, I was like actually pretty blown away, which kind of takes me into our, our like final segment. Basically, is that I I would absolutely defend this movie because I like mm-hmm. really enjoyed this movie. There's like a lot of merit to it, and it's just a really interesting watch. Yeah. Um. I'm gonna chime in and say I agree, Pete. I'm gonna have to defend it. It's it's a very interesting watch. I hadn't heard of it prior to Pete telling me about it, but I mean it's a quick eighty minutes, it's tight, I mean it's a fluid, the editing, you're into the plot from the very beginning because you know the body's sitting there, you keep riveted, you're interested in the characters. I thought all around it was it was well done. I um yeah, uh, Hitchcock him, himself said this is the most experimental piece that he ever worked on um he wasn't too proud of it he was saying but uh i think many people have come to love it um i think it was like 90 percent or pretty high 90 percent on rotten tomatoes people enjoy it um sure making a play into a, f- a film can be tough but i i recommend it i defend this movie yeah um to change gears for a second i found a little a little interesting trivia that I we were kind of talking about before the recording. Mm-hmm. I just think it's funny to share with the the listeners is that <clears throat> this little piece of trivia from IMDb is that since the filming times were so long, everyone on set tried their best to avoid any mistakes. At one point in the movie, the camera dolly ran over and broke a cameraman's foot. But to keep filming, he was gagged and dragged off. <laughs> another, <laughs> another time a woman puts her glass down but misses the table. 
A stagehand had to rush up and catch it before the glass hit the ground. And both of these parts oh. are used in the final cut. Oh. And I just, I just think that's, that's really great. great. <laughs> I'm speechless. Man, I, I am without speech. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <sighs> that's good stuff. So, everybody, please go out and see it. We, we defend it. Um, last thing before I guess, um, budget and box office for this film, Pete. I, I got it. I got the number. What did you, what would you think? Nineteen forty-eight budget for Alfred Hitchcock psychological oh. thriller is. Um, that's a good question. I don't even know. I'm gonna say a million dollar budget, which is okay. pretty high back then. I would say. Yeah. Is that is that correct? A little low. A little low. Okay. About, about two million. I okay. think a lot. Of, I think a lot of that goes to cast because they were saying yeah. it was a big, a big cast. I mean, the set, maybe the sets they had to move the sets a lot, but mostly cast. That's surprising for forty-eight. Yeah, yeah. it it just made back its money. It, it, the box office was two point two million, so it was roughly two million to make. They made two point two, so they made it back, <laughs> but just barely. Yeah, back then it probably was able to break even, but. If that was numbers now, that would be that movie would be a fucking failure. <laughs> oh yeah, because all yeah. of all the all the marketing cost. <laughs> yeah, it would have been a failure. Okay, well with that, that concludes this week's it records podcast episode of Rope. Please go out and see it. Pete and I both defend it. In the meantime, check out the uh, the website we got going up. We'll have our blogs going up regularly. Hope to have a mini episode out pretty soon. Next week, Pete and I. Give a little teaser what we're going to do for the full episode is uh, Night of the Living Dead. We're going to try to work a zombie movie in there. Finally, yeah, finally. Finally, <laughs> finally working a zombie movie in. Evil Dead doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, Evil Dead does not count. We made sure of it, so that's why we're doing Night of the Living Dead. Um, get to us on Twitter, Facebook, talk to us on the forums. Let us know what you're thinking. We'd love to have some feedback. Send us your artwork. Get some stuff up on the website. Love to hear back from you, our listeners. Not our viewers getting better at it. Until next week, though, or sorry, two weeks, I will remain in the shadows. I'm Matt Johnson. And I'm Peter Hansen, and I'm probably dead in a trunk somewhere. <laughs> <laughs>